So as I'm saying, I'm sure that we're not concerned about prophets and angels being greater than Jesus. Uh, but it was a concern, and it was a primary concern for the people who received this letter. And so if we're going to understand how this letter could apply to us, we have to understand how it applied to them. Right? Why was it so important for the Hebrews writer to call angels and Moses out by name? I don't know the last time you might have heard in a sermon people getting called out by name. Right? And you might feel uncomfortable. If you were to hear, oh, yeah, I mean, I'm not even about to go there. I'm not, even about to, I'm not even about to do it, right? But insert name here. We'd be like, oh, man, why are you talking about that person? Or what, is he perfect? And I mean, the Hebrews writer didn't care and felt that it was so important to call these people out by name. You know, we see in the Bible at many points in time that angels are physically powerful and were the ones who were entrusted by God with reality-altering uh, messages. An angel communicated to Hagar that God saw her in her plight and her mistreatment in the household of Abraham. Two angels communicated to Lot, urging him to leave that wicked city and be saved. An angel was sent to validate Abraham's faithfulness and stay his hand from slaying Isaac. An angel communicated to Jacob, telling him how to make his herd thrive. In Genesis 48, it's interesting, it says Isaac believed that it was an angel that had delivered him from all the trouble that he was in all his years. That must have been Jacob, actually. An angel appeared to Moses in that fiery bush, and that changed the course of history. It was an angel that had been going in front of the people of Israel at the very beginning of the Exodus, and the Bible tells us that very same angel moved positions and took up a rear guard for them as they were pursued by Pharaoh. It was angels that went ahead to prepare the promised land for the people, and Numbers 20 even goes so far as to say that the people believed an angel, not Moses, but an angel was sent to bring them out of Egypt after God heard their cries. It was an angel that came to them with the word of God at the beginning of the book of Judges to remind them of their covenant with God. And it was an angel that told little old Gideon that God was with him and that he was a mighty warrior. It was an angel who told Samson's mother she would no longer be barren and would give birth to a deliverer of the people. Angels were messengers of God, executors of God's judgment even at times, and they were held in high esteem. It was an angel that told Mary she would carry and birth the Savior of the world. So you can imagine that when you hear of angels having authority to destroy entire cities, wipe out vast armies, and even are entrusted to guard the very tree of life itself, in comparison to Jesus, who was betrayed by his closest, seemingly outwitted by his opponents, disgraced by all far and, and near. You can see how angels might stack up in your mind when you look at the credentials and say, wow, they stack up a little bit taller than Jesus. When you think about Moses, who came from privilege and yet used that privilege to serve his people, who gave up everything and chose to be counted as a part of the slave people, who gave up power and pleasure and prestige of Egyptian royalty to live a nomad's life, and who ascended the fiery mountain that if anyone else touched, they would die, who came down with tablets inscribed from God himself, who parted the Red Sea and defied the greatest power known on earth, who made a spectacle of the monarch of the greatest 
uh, uh, nation on the earth and the spiritual forces of Egypt and was used by God to shame them, who was undoubtedly triumphant in his attempts and his mission to liberate people and punish their oppressors. You can imagine why when looking in comparison to Jesus, Moses might look like the Jordan to the LeBron a little bit. We never saw Jesus' face glow, but Moses' face was shining after having a face-to-face with God. I'm trying to paint the picture. When we think about them struggling with Moses and with angels being greater than Jesus, it's not like it's a stupid idea. We shouldn't look at what they're saying and be like, oh, man, they're so, like, spiritually immature. Like, how could they ever think that? Like, that's that's a, a misunderstanding of how amazing Moses was and a misunderstanding of how powerful angels are. The people receiving this letter were looking at Jesus from a worldly point of view, and from that view, they found that Jesus was underwhelming. Moses was more inspiring. Angels were more the style of what they wanted to be. They wanted to be proud, triumphant, valiant, conquering, overcoming, to be feared. You know, there's a lot of noise that can disorient us and point us in a direction that looks and sounds like God's will, but it isn't. Chapter three of Hebrews dives right into this reality and alongside of expositing their history, there's some really strong warnings in this chapter. So as a preface, I wanna remind us, a couple of weeks ago when I preached and set up the sermon series for us, I offered up two pieces of advice that I felt would be helpful as we, as a community, went through this series, right? And the first one was this, to listen. To not shut our ears. To not harden our hearts, but instead to open our ears and open our hearts wide and listen to what the word of God may be trying to tell us. But the second thing was to not feel called out, but to feel called in, okay? As we dive into the scripture today, I I just anticipate that there's going to be some struggle. I know, and I, I wish I couldn't say that I know, but, but as far as I can as a fallible human, I know that some ears are going to close, some hearts are going to harden, and some people are going to feel offended. All right? It's what Hebrews 3 says. I didn't choose it. Mike chose it for me. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> All right? It wasn't like, oh, give me that one. I was like, no, no, no. This is what, was, this is what landed on my plate, and I'm going to stay faithful to the word of God. I beg you for your sake, and I beg you, beg you for God's sake, fight the urge to close yourself off. Amen? All right, so today's sermon is called Jesus, the Voice. All right? Chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the final and complete word from God, and it gives this list of credentials about who he is and why that matters. He's the very, uh, he's the very essence of God's being. He's the radiance of God's glory, and he is the final and complete word from God. And then Hebrews 2 tells us, we've heard it every week now, we must, therefore, we, must, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've seen and what we've heard. Uh, it's, it's weird phrasing to me. I, I would have I thought it might say, like, we, we must pay attention, or we must pay careful attention. But it says we must pay the most careful attention to emphasize to us that this stuff is serious. This stuff is serious. There are many competing voices that are vying for our attention, and that is what Hebrews 3 dives into. Maz, you got sound for me on, on, on this, uh, on, the, on the laptop or no? Potentially? 
All right, let's see, let's see. All right, so turn it up, make it loud. <laughs> you know, in the world, there's a lot of voices, and when the when the voices are low like this, when the volume's low, you can you can still hear clearly my voice. If it's not gonna work, that's okay. But can you imagine if this if these sounds and this murmuring were to get louder and louder and louder? And I'm, you barely can hear it. I'll be quiet for a half second so you can hear the, the gist of it. Ambient noise. So many overlapping voices. You can imagine that one that gets louder and louder and louder, it's almost like you can't think. It's almost like you, you're, you're trying to grasp. If this were louder, I, I could stand here and give you the keys to life, and you wouldn't even be able to hear. The chatter would be so overwhelming. And the point that I want to make with this is there are so many voices that are competing for our attention, and the trouble is that when there are so many voices, it's hard to distinguish the voice of Jesus. And so we listen and we try to discern and we grab onto voices and we let them influence us and we enlist in their cause. And we believe that the voice is the voice of Jesus even when it's not. Or we elevate these other voices. We would never say that's the voice of Jesus, but we elevate them to be on par with the authority that Jesus' voice has. We would never say it, but it's evident in the way that we live. And I think the most nefarious version of this is we hear these voices and we hear messages that are obviously not in line with the message and voice of Jesus and we wiggle our way into convincing ourselves first and then anyone who will listen to us afterwards that these are words and messages with which Jesus would align himself. This is not a new thing. I'm going to avoid talking about these people by name. But as I was thinking, I was wondering, whose voice do you hear when you think about your life? I think we're a well-read people. We're educated, we watch YouTube videos and podcasts and we're listening to the new teachings. Uh, we're involved in our community as well. We care about our city. Uh, we care about the way our world is going. And there are so many voices speaking into that space that sometimes it seems to me that we've missed the voice of Jesus. Now, like I said, this is not new. Clearly, the community of the Hebrew Christians was dealing with this nearly 2,000 years ago, but I can take it even further back to show us that from even the earliest pages of the Bible, there have been voices that compete with the, the voice of God, and mankind, time after time, has chosen the wrong voice. I can take us back to the beginning of Genesis. You know, one of the earliest sermons I remember hearing when I, when I came here, it was, it was uh, 2008, I want to say. Maybe it was 2009 when I actually heard this sermon. But we were meeting at IIT uh, down on 35th by Sox Stadium, right? And that auditorium was a little dark, right? I don't know if y'all remember those days. Uh, those velvet seats, right? And uh, velvet colored seats. And uh, one of the earliest sermons I remember uh, hearing preached nearly 15 years ago was by a man named John Mannell. John Mannell is a, a man who... And I, I've been getting a lot of comments about how I talk about people's age. I, I apologize. <laughs> I, love, I love everybody. But John Mantle's many years my senior, okay? Like, he, he's, 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 he's someone who, as I heard him speaking, I was like, I need to listen. He's been through life. I need to listen. 
to what he's having to say. And I sat at his feet that day in amazement of how the whole story of the Bible is filled with repetitions of what occurs in Genesis chapter 3. Right? Adam and Eve are with God, the place that we all want to be. And then a voice other than God's enters the arena, claiming that there's more, claiming that God isn't being forthright, saying that there's something more to be desired than living within the bounds of God's word. And this voice intersects with their, intersects with their internal human desire. Right? You know the story I'm talking about? There's the tree of life. There's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The serpent shows up, talks to Eve, says, well, surely, you know, did God say you can't eat any of the fruit? And she's like, well, well I mean, we can eat anything except for this one. <laughs> oh, well, surely you won't die if you eat this. And it says about Eve that she saw that it was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom. And so this voice comes in and meets in the middle with this desire and this assessment on her own and the, 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 the seeking after pleasure. Eve chooses to trust the other voice, reasoning that since it matches up with her desire, it must be good. And immediately, they're living in an altered reality after that decision. And the thing that John Mantle that day continued to say over and over again was, who told you that? The sermon was all about what lies do we believe and upon what things do we orient our lives and who told us that? The Bible says they recognized that they were naked and, and God's like, well, who told you you were naked? They're filled with shame because of their nakedness and the question is, well, who told you your body's shameful? They're living in a false reality because they thought this alternative voice and these alternative desires wouldn't have consequences. Who told you you will die? Who told you that it's pleasing to the eye? Who told you that this fruit was good for eating? None of that came from God. Who told you it was desirable for gaining wisdom? And so this story of the other voice, over time, it becomes the story of the other voices, right? It's not just a singular voice, but now many voices enter into the story of the people of God. And in this case, as we jump into Hebrews again in chapter 3, this same reality is being addressed, okay? So even in regard to angelic beings and spiritual heroes, in, in Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to read here starting in verse 2. It says, he was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Speaking of Jesus. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was, a faith, was, was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the, son of, as the son over God's house. And we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Right? I remember mentioning that the Old Testament is quoted more in the book of Hebrews than it is in any, than any other book in, in the New Testament. Right? Nearly twice as many quotes from the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews than in the one that comes second, which is the book of Romans. And so there's this setup statement as Mike preached last week. He goes from the angels now talking to Moses, talking about Moses saying he's greater than the angels because the angels serve him. He's greater than Moses. Although Moses was an incredible servant in the house, Jesus is the Lord over the house. And in what world is the servant greater than the, than the Lord of the house? 
Maybe this quote is familiar to us here um, in chapter, oh, where are we? In chapter 7. But I want to read this, and then I want to take us back to the story that it's referencing, okay? It says, so, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. This is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Right? Maybe you're familiar with what rebellion he's talking about, but I'd like you to consider for a second, what rebellion is the author referencing? Which one of the rebellions can you think of and which one comes to mind, right? There's plenty to think of. The pages of the Bible are filled with story after story of people's rebellion. And it's there because it's true about humanity. When we read the pages of the Bible, it's important for us to say it's not just them, it's me too. I am, I am wired this way. I am geared this way. This, the Bible is filled with stories like this. But it's fairly agreed upon that the particular rebellion that's being referenced here is from Numbers 14. So if you want to turn there, you can. I've got it on the screen as well. But there's this situation going on here where they've now been freed from slavery. Uh, Moses has died. He's, he's not made it into the promised land. And the next generation is going to, to make it happen, okay? And they decide to send uh, 12 spies into the promised land to see, hey, what's going on in there? What's it like? Is it really a land flowing with milk and honey? And so they go. They come back, and they bring fruit and a report of the land, and the land is as fruitful as God said it would be, but there's also some really tall, strong people there. And so 10 of the spies, we know, I think Ruben even preaches in a midweek just a couple of weeks ago talking about this, 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 this uh, scouting of the land. 10 of the spies come back, and they're like, yeah, it's true, the land is beautiful, but we cannot go in there. There are giants there. They will crush us. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and in their eyes as well. We should just go back to Egypt. Ten out of the 12 spies said that, okay? And so two of them, Joshua and uh, Caleb, were like, no, no, no. Like God said he will give us the land. God is powerful. And so they have this back and forth. And in verse 1 of chapter 14, it says, That night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. They were influenced by the 10. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This is crazy. Not so long ago, I mean, yeah, okay, it's been a little while, but not, not so long ago, just a couple of weeks or whatever, I don't know how long it took to get to this moment, but not so long ago, they're in the position where they're slaves. They have no rights. They have nothing. They're literally crying out to God because the work that they've been, that's been put on their shoulders is overwhelming. And now when they see what God has brought them to, after they've seen him overcome Pharaoh, after they've seen him uh, uh, demolish the people, after they've seen him open the, 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 the river wide and the sea wide and take them through, they don't think that God is able to do what he needs to do in this next stage. I can imagine 
them, them thinking these thoughts and Moses being like, who told you that it would be better to go back to Egypt? Who told you that God had brought you all the way here to die? What voice brought those thoughts into your mind? Who told you that the life and the ways of the Egyptians were better for, the, for you than what God had promised and commanded you? Who told you that Moses is misleading you? Who told you that you need to worry about your children's future because of God's plan? Like, who told you that? Whose voice are you hearing? And, and, and here, the question, you know, these questions aren't the biggest problem, all right? We're going to have questions in life. You've had questions before about God and what he's doing. The questions aren't exactly the issue, but hopefully the questions that we ask aren't all angsty and accusatory toward God, but instead they come from a place of trust. The real problem at hand here is the conclusions that they come to. You know, Jesus was in the desert too. And I recognize, as I told that story, I messed up the timeline a little bit, right? Um, you guys follow what I'm saying, right? Okay. Jesus was in the desert as well before his ministry started. He was hearing all kinds of voices. He was proposed with many questions, and many required him to answer others in his ministry, but there are a few instances where there were questions that would have been for him to answer for himself. Are you a king? Are you the son of God? If you are, come down now from the cross. Even statements that would make him want to prove something. The voice in the wilderness telling, telling him, you could just conquer the kingdoms of the world. You could just provide miraculous sign after miraculous sign, and then the people would believe you. You could make bread and satisfy yourself. You know, later on, at one point in his ministry, it says that the people wanted to make him king by force. And you can imagine the thoughts, the voices in his mind that would say, you could do a lot of good for these people as their king. You could advocate for their needs and provide for them, and you could even be an advocate among the other nations and for, between you and, and their kings. But Jesus did not allow those voices to determine what he was going to do. He was resolute, and even when that voice in the desert used scripture, Jesus chose to lean on the big picture of the story and not just cherry-pick some scripture that would justify what he wanted to do. Again, I asked, who are you quoting when you reason through life and the purposes and issues of life? Does the word of God enter your mind many times throughout the day? Or are we quoting one of these people who was on the screen who has wealth and power and influence because we want what they have? I don't know what you've been through. I know some stories here, and I don't know how you would rate discipleship if there was like a five stars, you know, give us a review. I, 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 don't, know, I don't know how you would do that on, on the scale of one to ten and what the outcomes have been for you. I don't know, but I could imagine if we're anything like Adam and Eve and if we're anything like the people in the book of Hebrews and people throughout the scripture that at one point or another, there's a strong temptation to say, this is not going the way that I thought it would. I'm going to utilize some other tools. I'm going to travel some other paths, and I'm going to dive into, into some other methods that I used to believe in to get things done. Here's the problem with this. The Israelites did this, and God flat out called it rebellion. He didn't say it was like, oh, they strayed, you know, or they walked away from me for a little while, or, you know, they'll come back around. It was labeled as rebellion. 
You don't believe me? You don't believe the promise I have for you and you'd rather turn to what you knew before? You don't want to go where I'm taking you, how I'm taking you there? You don't have to go. It's essentially what God told the people. Because of their actions and their choice to think this way, they, they forfeited God's promises for their life and they had to live a long 40 years in the desert until they all died. Can you imagine the impact that it had on their kids? Seeing all their parents and uncles and aunties and all that kind of stuff, grandparents just die? Knowing it was because they rebelled against God? Now, hopefully it would have produced a faithfulness in them, but th I think that this word's not in the Bible. That's a traumatic experience. <laughs> when we rebel, we don't just affect ourselves. We affect those coming after us. And when we choose plans other than God's or voices other than God's, it says in the Bible that God has no tolerance for that kind of unbelief. And so even bigger, this is what the writer is saying, even bigger, Jesus is greater than Moses. And this is how God responded to those who rejected the word that came through Moses. The writer is saying that if God was fed up with those who rejected his path after he saved them from slavery in Egypt through Moses, what makes you think he has tolerance for those who reject the path of Jesus after having been saved from slavery to sin. Let's read the rest of this passage here, starting in verse 12. It says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt and with whom he was angry with for 40 years? Was it not those uh, who sinned whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Just chapter one, uh, 4 and verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. You know, there's this phrase that catches my eye in this passage. It's the phrase, see to it. What does see to it mean to you? We're bringing this down for a close, okay? I know that there are a lot of thoughts of what we shouldn't do in this realm of see to it, but I hope we aren't thinking that we essentially shouldn't obey the call to see to it. What does it mean to see to it? Are we a see to it church? I'm not sure. Are you a see to it disciple? Where what you look at in the Bible causes you to think, I got to make this happen. The crazy part about this call to see to it, it wasn't about see to it that you're right and that you're righteous and that you have your quiet time and that you're good before God. It says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. It's about each other. Do we believe that it is every one of our roles to see to it that our community is filled with faithful, focused and fruit-bearing disciples. It doesn't say see to it that you get rich. See to it that you have your squad and your besties in the church. 
See to it that you live your best life or see to it that no one messes up the good vibes we have here. See to it that you protect your energy. That's all new age nonsense. See to it that you get something out of this life. It says, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Some of us don't talk about God enough. Some of us don't like to talk about God enough. You can have a whole conversation and God's name doesn't come up once. And because of that, at times, we can be just like what we see in the Israelites. We read back on them and we judge them hard because they're pitiful and they're blind. They're nearsighted. Chasing slavery, thinking that it's freedom. Dividing, divided about things that, that, that they never should have been divided about and then unable to reach unity about things that should be no-brainers. You know, the amount of eggshells that I hear people walking on when it comes to addressing plain and obvious spiritual issues of rebellion and sin and unbelief the eggshells that people, the hoops people have to walk through to bring stuff up to one another breaks my heart. How much do I have to tell you I love you before you can let me speak the word of God to you, brother or sister? How many meals do you have to have at my house before I can show you the word of God, brother or sister? How are we so difficult with one another? It's wrong. And it's like the Israelites. It is Rebellion. So many of us are caught up in an agenda that isn't Jesus' agenda. We talk about what kind of world will my children grow up in or what kind of world will my grandchildren inherit? Can you really affect that? Why not think about what kind of household will my children grow up in? That is within your control. What kind of household will my grandchildren grow up in? You can't dictate to the world. You can't determine the outcomes. But you can change your family. You can change your friendships. You can change things within your sphere of influence. I'll tell you today, the entire world is not within any of our spheres of influence. Humble yourself. Jesus thought it sufficient to take 12 people and influence them. Are you greater than Jesus? Get 12 people under your belt who you influence toward Jesus. How about that? Maybe you're more effective than Jesus, the son of God. Maybe you can help more than 12 people over the next three years. Go for it. I will stand in awe and learn from you. Change the people around you. Stop listening to the voices that inflate your ego to make you think you know how to move and, and do things better than you do. Quit listening to the voices that inflate your ego to think you know more and better than Jesus himself, the savior of the world. You know, we have time to complain about the world not getting better, but we only have time to do that when we're not spending any time actually helping people get face to face with God. Because when I look out, I see the world getting better, but it's because I see individuals doing what it is that God is calling them to do. It has never been my goal to see the world get better, but I, I do see it happening, and I'll tell you how. It's one person at a time. There's a guy named Moises who studied the Bible at UIC. He's the man. He's a third year, lived on the southwest side of the city, grew up, this, grew up in, in the city. He's a city boy. 
He's in his third year, grew up in, in, in a hard part of the city, and now he's studying architecture and making it, making it happen. Terrence met him. We're having Bible studies with him and Jonathan, and he's just a short step away from making Jesus Lord of his life. And I'm thinking, well, that's how the world changes. There's a gal named Kayla who was baptized two weeks ago. She's been studying the Bible for months, and she's made decisions. She said, you know what? I see that the reality I'm living in isn't actually real. I'm deceiving myself. I want to live this life that is in alignment with, the, with what Jesus has to say about the world. That is what changes the world. There's a young man named Noah that Paris met in the first couple of days of school. Noah is studying neuroscience, and he travels between DeKalb and the city doing school. Comes in the city two days a week and takes a, a long row of classes and still finds time to meet me for a Bible study. And then the other days of the week, he's working a nine-to-five shift at a warehouse, and he goes to the Bible talks a church service out in DeKalb. And I look at him and the things that he's been through and the things he's had to overcome, and I say, well, this is how the world changes. We bring people face-to-face -face with God and say, stop rebelling. I mean, the stories go on. There's a young, young lady named Clara. There's another gal named Isha and Jamie. And there's so many people that are seeking after God and are learning to make Jesus Lord of their life. But even beyond just the people who are seeking, people who are here right now, I think about Terrence McGee. I can't lift Terrence up enough. Terrence is a guy who comes from the, the west side of the city. Again, where if, you, if you live in Chicago, you know the west side is not easy. It's not easy growing up and going to school on the west side of Chicago. There's so many opportunities for you to get involved in the wrong things and have your life trailed down a path you don't want it to go. Terrence has chosen to follow Jesus. Terrence has chosen to be a great example of what it means to read his Bible and share his faith and try to be encouraging, even where there's limitations in his nature and his personality sometimes. We all have things that, that, that are flat sides for us. But what's inspiring is when people push past those for the sake of God. That is how the world will change. I mean, Ross came up here today and shared his heart. Ross has been encouraging the, 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 the depths of my soul since he moved here. You know, sometimes, and I'm not, I'm not trying to, guilt anybody. Sometimes my life can feel like people just want things from me. And it's because I have things to offer and I'm grateful. But Ross has been in a position in my life where he calls me just to, just to talk to me and says, hey, can I come over? I'm like, for, for what? Oh, I just want to spend some time. All right, and come over. And to see that, that is how the world changes. To see someone like, I don't even know if Veronica's here. Is Veronica here? To see Veronica, you guys, the women know Veronica now. She preached well, alongside Paris on Wednesday night. But, but if you don't know Veronica, Veronica is a light and a joy and a hardworking, persevering, no excuse type of person. And she's spending her life and her time trying to help people see God the right way and see that rebellion doesn't do anything but hurt you. The list goes on. I think of Carly, I think of Paris, I think of Amanda, I think of Maddie, I, I mean, I think of Tiana. I mean, I, there's so many people in the campus ministry and the young pros who I'm getting to know. It's blowing my mind to see how God is working in a powerful way. And I'm bringing all these people up to say, they don't talk a lot, right? It's not just a bunch of talking. They don't just talk. They don't just listen to, uh, they don't just listen to and, and be listened to. They are doing what it is the word of God is calling them to do. I think as a people, we need to stop talking. And we need to listen to the voice that tells us the truth and attune our ears to him. We need to do what he says. I mean, early on in the gospel, it says, this is my son whom I love. We like that part. But then it says, do what he says. Jesus never said talk and listen unendingly or engage in unending dialogue and debate. He said, go 
and make it happen. Today I say let's learn from God's word and choose to surrender to it. Let's not rebel and miss out because we're listening to all the other voices. Let's start right here at home and see to it that we are righteous, that we are faithful, that we have believing hearts, and let's encourage each other every single day with the word of God, heavy on our tongues and heavy on our hearts and heavy in our actions, amen? With what God does with that, God will do with that. But let's make it our goal to give him a fertile field to work with, amen? Let's pray and we'll take communion together. Father God, I wanna thank you for uh, giving us your word and uh, the story that makes so much sense to us. And uh, God, I pray that we could really find ourselves in the story and uh, understand that rebellion is not the destiny you have for us. God, I pray that we could learn to trust you. I pray that we could learn to put into practice your word and even more specifically, God, when it says, see to it, and when it says, do not harden your heart, I pray, God, that we would make individual decisions to soften our hearts and to realign with Jesus, that we wouldn't allow other voices that we want to listen to, uh, that we wouldn't try to finesse it and make it sound like it's Jesus' voice, but that we would surrender and find out what Jesus' voice actually is. I pray that we would humble ourselves, God, but I also pray that we would humble ourselves in a way that allows us to speak into each other's lives and see to it, that we would invite encouragement, God, that we would invite people spurring us and pushing us on towards faithfulness and toward love and toward good deeds and toward a life that clearly shows we're living in the light of Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you would use our community in a great way uh, to, to change our, our, our experience of life together. God, I pray that we would be little lights on little hills in this city. I pray, God, that we would be uh, safe havens for one another, that we would be refreshing to each other, that we would be protecting to each other, uh, but that we would also be those who build one another up uh, toward uh, the likeness of Jesus in all that we do, God. Uh, thank you so much that Jesus' sacrifice makes this possible. And I pray that as we reflect on this, uh, taking the bread and taking the juice, um, that we really invite you into the space to, to help us move forward, God. This is Jesus, let me pray. Amen.